At Seen and Heard, it's always been our mission to see a Scotland that is bursting with rural businesses that are thriving and succeeding. But maybe you're running one of these businesses and feeling overwhelmed and a little out of control and maybe you have a constant headache when it comes to thinking about how you can successfully market and promote that business. Well, we can help. We have created the On Farm Academy, which takes the headache out of marketing. It is an online resource packed full of bite-sized courses that can help you to get your marketing on track and totally transform your business. So go in, have a dive, see what you can find and download the courses that suit you. Simply visit training.onfarmacademy.com. Hi, Local Zero. This is Becky and Fraser, and we're just interrupting the show for a minute to tell you about some breaking news that's happened since recording the main part of today's episode. Fraser. Yeah, we are afraid to say that we are no longer joined by Dr. Matt Hannon. Why is that, Becky? That is because he is no longer Dr. Matt Hannon. He is now Professor Matt Hannon. Congrats, Matt. (laughs) Congratulations. He has seemed like a professor for a lot longer, right? That guy was born with elbow patches. Yeah, I think so. And the cap. Don't forget the cap. (laughs) We're only joking for Matt. You finally have the, uh, the title that matches your personality and we couldn't be happier for you. We are absolutely stoked. Uh, but enough of that. On with the show. And just to say, Matt, we do expect a lot yeah. more from you in the future. Now you're professor, we are expecting you to take the conversation to the next level. <laughs> right now, back to the episode. There will always be issues in a particular context. So there will be stories in every location and trying to understand those stories, trying to understand value and meaning in those places is absolutely a way of bringing communities along on this great adventure in developing clean, green, renewable energy that could create so much potential for the country. They could see, you know, the port redevelopment and supply chain redevelopment around that area to be able to create these offshore wind projects, which isn't just a one-off payment or a compensation. It is a long-term sustainable industry that you're building and you're providing a future for many people who have lost that. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Fraser, Matt and Becky, your go-to for local action to tackle the climate crisis. This week's episode is about offshore wind. More specifically, the UK government's plans to have 50 gigawatts installed by 2030 and what that means for local areas and communities. Yes, so joining us today is Dr. Claire Haggett, Senior Lecturer of Sustainability at the University of Edinburgh. And we're also joined by Grace Millman, an energy analyst and colleague of Fraser's at Regia. So together we'll be chatting about the impacts of offshore wind, the potential benefits for local communities and what we need to do to unlock them. And if you haven't already, do go find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions there. And if you can't constrain your thoughts to just a few characters, do email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. And today we want to give a big shout out to James Kerr for his lovely tweet about how much he enjoyed our recent Shifting and Flexing Home Energy Demand episode. Thanks, James. 
Yes, and thanks also to Twitter at Lily M. Wrights. In our flight-free episode, we were talking about air mile reward schemes that encourage people to fly even when we don't need to. We wondered why trade companies don't offer something similar. Lily kept us right, uh, saying some do, and she highlighted LNER as being one that does. So she also saying that getting the train from Edinburgh to Côte d'Azur this summer, um, great effort. Hope you enjoy the trip. But, well, I wish I was going on a trip to Cote d'Azur, but before we get into the episode, I mean, maybe we <laughs> maybe we should start by saying we actually are going on holiday. Not all together. That would be a bit much, I think. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah <laughs> but, a little much. Yeah. But <laughs> I mean, I'm up for it, but... <laughs> if anything, we're going on holiday from each other. <laughs> we need the break get I'll, me I'll, have to let, I'll have to let the family down gently you know we were going on a summer holiday well, change, change of plan but uh no we are going away so you will have to have a slight pause from the local zero love in july whilst the three of us take time to swan off to lovely lovely vacations that we're all going on for a bit of a break but We still have a fantastic episode ahead of us today, don't we, Fraser? We do. It's a big, big episode. So today we're talking specifically about offshore wind and the big sort of revolution that we're undergoing just now to to maximise the potential of that in the UK. Now, intuitively, you might not think offshore wind anything to do with with the local, but of course, whatever offshore wind is, there are huge sort of uh, economic opportunities, social opportunities, there's supply chain, community benefit attached to that. So in this episode, we really want to think about how can communities and local areas benefit from offshore wind? What are the opportunities for them to participate in the governance of it? Is there opportunity for ownership? And how might that look? How do we go about unlocking that? So I think big, big conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's a massive growth area, right? So uh, recent kind of upgraded ambition for offshore wind from originally 40 gigawatts to 50 gigawatts. What does that mean? Well, we're roughly at about 10 gigawatts at the moment in the UK. So looking out from today, 2022 to 2030, in eight years, looking to scale this up um, from about 10 to 50 gigawatts. So the factor of five, which is massive. And in Scotland alone, the recent uh, Scotwind leasing round leased a pipeline of about 25 gigawatts, which is which is a phenomenal amount. Yeah, huge. Uh, yeah. So the question is, what does that mean for the country? What does that mean for the region, local communities? But this, this topic, whilst we'll talk a bit about Scotland and the UK, this is relevant to anywhere, really, worldwide, about communities and offshore wind. Well, communi- coastal communities and Coast- offshore wind, right? Well, <laughs> that's a good point, Becky. So, you know, should an offshore wind project focus benefits for uh, you know, coastal communities. Obviously, there are wider benefits across the system. If you're uh, delivering offshore wind, you can make uh, nowadays, you know, with how cheap offshore wind is, much cheaper, cleaner power. So there's, there are kind of uh, externalised, socialised benefits to this. But what happens to those communities who are looking at these things day in, day out and, and, and you know, are, are part and parcel of that? Right. So I'll be surprised, Matt, if you haven't got a nice pretty graph showing us where all the offshore wind is in the UK. Am I am I right? Am I on the money? Have you have you done your homework? <laughs> Not per se, Becky, but <laughs> but I've done a bit of sleuthing, or at least I've listened, uh, read some good sleuthing. So there's well, we'll defer to it, the experts who are going to give us more on this. But the, the community benefit for offshore wind is is a real kind of nascent subject. There's not really much in the way of guidance around this. So offshore wind developers kind of do what they 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 want to do. To and I and I quote an interesting paper I've read recently from uh, uh, academic Oxford Brooks Glasson to get a social license to operate. So what what amount of money 
do we need to provide communities per megawatt installed per annum to gain that social license? And it varies, but typically offshore wind, much less than onshore wind. Onshore wind, the kind of standards around 5,000 per megawatt per year. Offshore wind, much less. We're seeing regularly from as little as 500 up to about 2,000. So it's less than onshore. Does it need a smaller license to operate? Well, this is the thing is when you start accounting for the scale, it's still a, a massive amount of money that's coming in. The important thing here, though, and it's the same with offshore, even in even in Scotland and in Wales, although Wales are making inroads on this in policy just now, but it's not mandated, right? That £5,000 for onshore per megawatt currently is just the standard, and that's the accepted sort of practice. But actually, the amount of money that an offshore um, array is going to be generating for the, for the developers specifically is utterly, utterly enormous. And if you think the use that that could be going to within local communities, even to local authorities, on the proviso that it maybe goes back into community benefit, that's transformational amounts of money, even if you just sort of double that £5,000 for argument's sake. So I think that that social licence thing is such an important question. It is. It's, it, it really fascinates me, though. I mean, because at first, and I remember when you first proposed that we, that we do an episode on this, Fraser, and I was just thinking, I can't see how offshore wind and the concept of communities come together. And you can, you can really see it for, you know, onshore wind, other small-scale renewables. And, you know, I think it was in the last episode or a couple of episodes previously, we've talked about the Octopus Fan Club and um, was it Ripple Energy, where, where you're really, you feel connected to that generation resource because it, it literally is in your backyard. Whereas this just feels so far removed that I think sometimes it's a little yeah. hard to bring those concepts together. There's another key element to this is that it's much, much easier, although still very difficult, particularly if you live in England, it's much harder for a community to, to coordinate, galvanise themselves, to deliver an offshore wind project, which are extremely complicated, extremely costly. But it is possible for them to do it around onshore, especially in areas where there is support for this, like Scotland. So there is... Yeah, as you say, in terms of that disconnect, Becky, it's not just a kind of a physical or emotional disconnect, but it's kind of a, you know, in terms of an ownership and governance disconnect, these these communities don't really have a way in to these offshore wind. Now, maybe there is a way. Could we have shared ownership? Could we have models like Ripple Energy where you crowdsource funds from, from people across the country to deliver part of an offshore wind project? So this is something that we're seeing trialled. So Energy for All and Falk, who are one of the big winners out of the Crown Estate Scotland, uh, the Scotland leasing round, are currently exploring, well, how how can we raise the money to, to make maybe 10% of this installation cooperatively owned? You also have situations for, for onshore granted, but in North Ayrshire, where the council stumped up money to take ownership that goes back into the, the community that way. So maybe it's not, maybe we think less about community energy groups as we understand them, small groups of dedicated volunteers trying to erect a single wind turbine. And maybe we need to think more about local enterprise partnerships. Maybe we're thinking about conglomerates of community energy groups, or maybe like we say, Ripple Energy for all these bigger scale cooperative style organisations to pull it together. Because it's a lot of money. It's a lot, a lot of money you need. There's a very interesting piece of research that came out last year, I think it was from Aquaterra. And it, it asked the question, how much, in terms of money, how much benefit do communities get from a privately owned wind farm that makes community benefit payments into a pot versus a community owned wind farm? They came up from, from their analysis, 
it would be 34 times the, the monetary benefit from the community owned versus the privately owned. And to give you a sense, let's, let's, let's put some flesh on the bones of an actual project here. There is a, a, a project in Orkney where it is just shy of, of a megawatt, 0.9 megawatts. And each year it, it provides almost 300,000 pounds from, from that turbine, which is about a megawatt, to that community. Over the course of 25 years, that's nearly 7 million pounds. <laughs> How many energy bills is that, you know, for the community? I mean, that's, that, yeah. we're really getting down to brass tacks now. That's, this, is, this is a core issue in the, in the context of an energy crisis. <laughs> it is, and with that, I think it's probably time to bring in our guests. Sweet. Hello there, my name's Claire Haggett, and I'm a senior lecturer in sociology and sustainability at the University of Edinburgh. And for the last 20 years, I've been researching public responses to renewable energy developments. My name is Grace Millman. I'm an energy analyst at Regen, um, a not-for-profit organisation whose mission is to transform the energy system for a zero-carbon future. Welcome, Claire and Grace, uh, onto this fascinating episode. We're, We're very excited to have you along and to talk about this big and very, very live issue about community benefit and impacts of offshore wind. Now, first things first, for our listeners, some people will be familiar with the difference between offshore energy, offshore wind, and onshore energy and onshore wind. But just for the avoidance of doubt, when we say offshore and onshore energy, what exactly do we mean? So Claire, could we possibly begin with you? And I'll I'll turn to Grace. Sure. Thanks, Matt. And I agree. I think this topic is absolutely fascinating. Um, There are some differences between on and offshore renewables. Um, So offshore, we have wind farms all around the coast of the UK. In fact, the UK is a world leader in the generation of offshore wind energy. And there are demonstration test projects in the water as well for wave and tidal energy. What's interesting is that some of the issues that have occurred with onshore wind are very similar offshore as well. So it's very easy, perhaps, to think of offshore energy projects, offshore wind projects as being out of sight, out of mind and as being quite different. But we know that a lot of the same issues that occur onshore occur offshore too. So issues around visual impact, issues around a disjuncture between the national or international benefits that renewable energy brings and the impact locally and also issues around process, the way in which projects are developed. So issues around impact, benefits and process are pretty similar for onshore and offshore wind. And Grace, do you see any other key differences between the two or are we kind of dealing with a homogenous group of of energies here? I think the the main difference is really the scale. So, you know, obviously when we're developing onshore, we have a constraint because of land and because of the other uses of that land, primarily for housing and and development in our own lives. So when we go offshore, we actually have a lot larger kind of area that we can develop in. And now as well with the introduction of floating offshore wind, which can operate in um, deeper seabeds, you can go further and further offshore and still be generating. But as Claire said, you have a lot of the same issues because at the end of the day, that offshore energy is going to need to connect onshore somewhere. So the similar issues that onshore wind and onshore renewables face are faced by offshore as well but on a much larger scale, because we are talking about gigawatts um, or potentially, well, many, many gigawatts offshore. Yeah, I mean, that that brings us, I mean, to a couple of really important points that I want to dig into a bit further. And you talked about scale 
Uh, so the word scale and the word local has just come up a few times. And I think this is really, really important. And on the one hand, we're talking about scale and just the huge amount of offshore that we might be able to build, maybe. Like how realistic is it? We'll dig into that. But also this concept of scale when we're thinking about local within our Energy Rev research. Um, so Energy Rev is the research consortium that supports Local Zero. Um, and some of our researchers have been looking at, you know, what does local mean? Because it's, I think, local community, these words are all words that we use all the time, but we possibly are using them with different different mental models behind it. Mm. And certainly in the projects that we've seen that are onshore, they're not necessarily onshore wind, but they are certainly land-based projects, local has been used very pragmatically you know it grows it shrinks so so i think maybe let's let's dive into both of those first so f- let's start with the scale of the wind and then maybe the scale of local <laughs> so the scale of the wind i mean are some of these new targets realistic like can we achieve the amount of wind that we want to deploy by 2030 you know is this realistic can we do it 50 gig i mean yeah it's huge is it realistic i mean grace you were talking about some of those challenges and the scales. Is it realistic? Yeah. Can we meet that? Well, I mean, as an energy analyst, um, I had to come with some numbers because um, that's how my mind works. Um, so I, as you said, Matt, the target is for 50 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. Um, to kind of put that in context, we're currently at 11.3 gigawatts operational around the UK. And I think the issue here is not around the pipeline. So in the pipeline, we have nine gigawatts under construction of offshore wind. The Scottish Crown Estate has just... Um, granted seabed rights to 25 gigawatts of fixed and floating offshore wind around Scotland. And we have the potential for a four gigawatt leasing round in the Celtic Sea. So, you know, add that all together, you get 50 gigawatts. Great. That's not the issue. The issue is developing that and the rate of development needed. So to get to 50 gigawatts by 2030, that would mean four gigawatts of deployment a year. And we currently hit about 1.2 gigawatts of deployment a year. So that is the issue. It's not that the developers aren't there or the projects aren't there or the, the feasible areas aren't there. It's the fact that we need to deliver at a rate that we haven't delivered at before. And how do we actually scale up our supply chains? How do we get our ports ready for that? How is our grid ready for that? Um, and that's where the question around feasibility comes in. But on the positive side of that, hopefully that's all fixable with good strategies and good investment. Um, so from a theoretical point of view, yes, we can achieve that but it would require rates of deployment kind of not seen within that industry. So that's the big question. So Claire, is this where, is this where local meets scale? Um, like as you start to think about deployment, is that, is that one way to think about it? I think you're absolutely right, Becky, that there's something very interesting about how local and how community is defined when we're thinking about offshore energy projects. Sometimes, as Grace has said, these will be floating winds, so these will be a long way offshore. And Community is one of those very vague and nebulous and slippery sort of terms. It can mean everything and nothing. And in this sort of context, it's interesting how it is differently used. So, for example, if we're thinking about who is the community, the local community from an offshore wind farm, there are different ways that that term has been defined or understood. If we're thinking about offshore wind farms as harnessing a great national natural resource, so harnessing something that is of great benefit, then that community is sometimes defined very broadly. It could even be the whole country or it could be a wide region. 
If we're thinking about those who might be affected by the development of offshore projects, so people on land who perhaps have sight of it or whose activities are in some way influenced by it, then that's a, a more specific community. But sometimes we're thinking actually very specifically about a host community. So those locations in which the onshore cabling or the onshore substation is located. So that's a very particular, very geographically specific understanding of a community. And in this field, we see all of these being used sometimes at the same time. So community meeting scale happens in different ways and in different contexts. So Grace, this is something that you've dug into a little bit in terms of communities that are impacted, in terms of the local area and what that means. Broadly defined, what has offshore energy meant for, for local areas, for host communities, for, for people close to those developments so far? I mean, I think um, from a from a nebula point of view, I'm kind of like, oh yeah, offshore wind's great for everyone because it means we reach net zero. So um, I'd love to think that it has a lot of benefits for everyone, um, but from a very tangible perspective around what is that actually giving back, um, there has been um, a lot of commitment by developers um, in offshore wind to either fund specific projects, so funding school programs, university programs, um, the building of schools and things like that in local areas, or a kind of um, consistent per annum fee that they uh, that they donate to a local area, um, and that's kind of up to them to use in the way that benefits them most. Um, there's also been some focuses on fuel poverty and helping to alleviate that um, from different developers. However, I think the key thing here is it it is a voluntary thing um, in the UK right now, and it is up to the developer, um, and there isn't any kind of favourable treatment for developers that do do it. That is the issue, is that when do, when do you move off profits and you actually start thinking about benefits in the community and the impact of your development? I'm going to be uh, annoying, actually. Uh, I, I, you, Matt, never. <laughs> for a change, I'll never do it. <laughs> Claire's asking a really important question there about what do we define by community? And Grace, you're quite rightly talking about directly, you know, the, the, the benefits that these communities may enjoy. Um Claire, I, some of the research you've undertaken, you, you've spent quite a lot of time asking the question, not only what is what do we mean by community, but what do we mean by impact? What do we mean by benefit? So I wonder whether you could offer a bit of insight into what, where, where are the boundaries around this? What, what are we classing, uh, classifying as a, an impact uh, and also what are we classifying as a benefit? Yeah, that's a really good question, Matt. And we think that those three things are absolutely related to each other. How you define a community, how you define the benefit, and how you understand the impact that, that might come from any particular project. So you might think of the, the impact as being very positive, that clean energy is a good thing. So hosting projects is a positive thing. And therefore, that you're spreading the benefits widely that come from this positive project. So that, that's a very wide definition of a community. If the impacts are perceived to be more negative, that there's something that might be lost, then benefit becomes about trying to rebalance or redress that, trying to invest in communities to try and support them. Um, if it's thinking about um, benefit and impact more narrowly and a more narrow definition of community, that's when we're thinking about being a good neighbour 
and demonstrating good corporate social responsibility to those communities who are hosting um, cabling or onshore substation sites. You're trying to say something, Matt, I'm going to stop talking so you can get a word in. Well, no, I'm, I'm just fascinated by what you're saying. So I think, sure. you know, often these payments, these community mm. benefit payments, I, I hear often rightly or wrongly, people slip of the tongue possibly, referring to these as compensation benefits. Now, when when you see an offshore wind mm. project at sea, I'm immediately looking at that and thinking, well, somebody's got to look after that. You know, there's operations and maintenance. There was a lot of work that went in in terms of commissioning this and the environmental impact assessments and all the rest. And then there's, there's work that needs to be done at the end of this. There are jobs. There is an economy, uh, a whole uh, you know industrial complex around around these. So do we need benefit payments are, are they not creating a benefit, you know, already? Well, yes, I think Claire was right to say, you know, there is always going to be a community that's directly impacted. So, for example, you look at the cable laying route, there's going to be fields that are, that are dug up to lay that cable. And therefore, there is an element there that the people who have um, complied and helped and supported that project by allowing that cable route should have some kind of compensation to say thank you and to, you know, mitigate that impact. But when that's the only, when that's seen as the only benefit, it has to be a financial benefit. Actually, what we need is sustainable benefits. And that comes, as you said, from jobs, that comes from the supply chain, it comes from GBA in the area, and it comes from prosperity in areas that potentially have been quite hard hit. Because a lot of these places where you're going to be landing are kind of coastal communities, potentially industrial communities that have, uh, you know, if we look at South Wales, where a lot of um, offshore wind projects could come online, they're going to face a real challenge with the shift away from fossil fuels. That's where a lot of their industries are and have already been impacted by that. They could see, you know, the port redevelopment and supply chain redevelopment around that area to be able to create these offshore wind projects, which isn't just a one-off payment or a compensation. It is a long-term sustainable industry that you're building and you're providing a future for many people who have lost that. Claire, do you share the same view or, or, or something different? I, I do. And I think it's very interesting, Matt, that you mentioned compensation. And you're right that very often that is a slip of the tongue because the sorts of benefits that we're talking about here are not compensatory benefits, for example, that sometimes are paid to the fishing industry. We're talking about very different sorts of benefits here. And benefits in terms of a just transition, whereby there are fair processes and that the benefits of moving to a just transition are spread widely and are available. Um, and we're thinking about energy justice, where we have distributive justice, that um, communities can benefit and should benefit from this move towards low carbon technologies. But what's really interesting is that research very strongly finds that communities can't be bought and that thinking about benefits, thinking about paying into local community funds and so on, doesn't necessarily buy support from the local community for that project, because that assumes that the landscape or the seascape has a price on it. It assumes that people put a price on what might be happening around them. Research very strongly finds that benefits are appropriate and only appropriate when they're part of a bigger and ongoing commitment from developers to local communities and as part of a fair process. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not going to ask the next question because Becky's going to come in, but your point about not being able to buy communities reminds me of a summer holiday I had about three years ago. I won't name the place, but I had the conversation with the person in the community hub, paid for by community benefit funds from an onshore wind farm. We could both see and we were talking about, and they were very angry about the construction of it. 
whilst they were sitting there having a coffee in the community hub paid for by it. So mm. I hear you. Yeah, it's I'm interesting, it. actually, Matt. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who who lives in the North Devon coast and he got his house very cheaply because it overlooks an offshore wind farm and he works in energy. So he absolutely adores it. And he is so thankful to the person that built that offshore wind farm because he got his house cheap because the previous owners thought it was an eyesore. (laughs) So it's about who values what. And there's also a a societal shift that's hopefully happening where Mm. these developments are not seen as ugly or intrusive or, you know, an eyesore, but they're seen as a remarkable reflection of what we're achieving and what we're working towards and and our shift away from fossil fuels so I mean that but the thing is that unfortunately forms a small percentage of people at the moment um we shouldn't be looking to buy those people but we should be looking to bring them along on that on that transition to be able to see the value in these projects well this so I think this is a fascinating point and I want to reflect on some of the language um and the language of complied and compensated is very different from a language around participating and engaged and co-creating. Mm. And and if I think about the things that I value, yeah. I mean, I, I always bring things back to like what my kids do because it's pretty much what my life revolves around right now. But if you sort of presented me with a terrible piece of like splodged artwork I would not value it at all. The fact that it's something that I made with my children means that I value it so deeply because there's something more than just what I'm seeing. And I wonder if the way in which we are, in in which the narrative is being framed and in which these, these, um, these projects are being developed is not lending itself particularly well to creating that value. So, you know, Claire, you talked about distributive justice, but actually, is there another way forward where communities can be actually engaged far more in the process and shift the entire narrative on this? I think so. I think you're absolutely right. And I think about, I think that um, what Grace said about bringing communities along with us is absolutely the way forward here. And I think that comes about from trying to understand the places in which these projects are being planned. Research very clearly finds that there will always be issues in a particular context. The issues themselves will be different, but there always will be something. And it will be that particular context which gives meaning and value and attachment to that particular place. So sort of the story behind the place, the story behind that splodged artwork. So there will be stories in every location and trying to understand those stories, trying to understand value and meaning in those places is absolutely a way of bringing people along with us, bringing communities along on this great adventure in developing clean, green, renewable energy that could create so much potential for, for the country. So I think that you're absolutely right to be thinking about why we value these places. And that's a big part of of moving forward i think there's some really good examples of that actually already happening this is where it goes beyond just a payment or anything like that and so blue gen wind who are a floating offshore wind developer are doing a big initiative at the moment with schools so they have created an educational pack about floating offshore wind they go into schools to talk about it and they they started a competition for the children to name their next floating offshore wind project and they're doing that for all their projects going forward but what that means is those children go home and they go oh my god floating offshore wind have you heard about it let's talk about it it's going to happen off our coast and it becomes an exciting conversation to have rather than it being something that's happening to them but something that they feel that 
they they understand a bit more and that they can be excited about and they then see you know these children are then seeing careers in this in the future and they could be a floating offshore project manager they could be a developer they could be you know um i'm not sure if any of you know any of those uh are careers that children might be excited by but um they could work in this awesome floating offshore wind and that's i think where developers have much more of a responsibility to the community and responsibility to the sector to do that and bring people along rather than as you're saying Claire, the compensation or anything like that buying people it's completely the wrong language we're talking a lot about um what are developers given what are we willing to accept from developers everything seems to be in this conversation the the developers gift to give should we be talking about shared ownership? Should we be talking about different structures of governance here? Not just participation and not just benefit, but an actual ownership stake at the local level, whether that's community, local authority. Is this another conversation we need to have? I think that's a really good question. And a shared ownership necessitates engagement. It necessitates a, necessitates a partnership. If you are a community who has a stake in an offshore wind farm, then you have to be working in partnership along with the developer. So in principle, it's a great idea and it could really help to build on exactly the sorts of things about which Grace has been talking about, you know, really exciting and pun intended, energising communities, really getting them excited about these projects. You can probably hear that there's a but coming, and that's um, about the the difficulties of arranging shared ownership. So for smaller, more local onshore projects, it's fairly complicated already. It's difficult for communities to raise finance. Um, there's a lot of time and commitment and skills needed by community members to engage effectively in this sort of process. And there are similar issues that you've been talking about in this series um, during the, the, the podcast on Green Leads about the way in which sometimes it's not people who live in a community who are buying into environmental projects that are located there. So there are a lot of issues, not just specific to on, off, on or offshore wind that are relevant when we're thinking about shared ownership. So in principle, it's a great idea. Details, uh, a bit tricky. Can I ask a question um, about how community benefit payments are currently governed? Because there's, there's potentially, well, I know there's big chunks of money from onshore wind, less kind of per megawatt per annum from offshore wind, not quite as lucrative for communities as it stands, but may, may change. But how, how are these funds actually managed? And could that be a way of bringing a little bit more in the way of uh, social justice and sort of distribu uh, distributive and procedural justice. So there's kind of this fair distribution of, of benefits, but also fair distribution of power and agency. Um, I don't know who, who, who wants to hop in, but whether you've got a familiarity with how these schemes actually work. There's not um, government requirements of them. And so from that perspective... Any management of them is through kind of the developer and the community group itself, rather than it being something that has, you know, a regulator um, to make sure that that is kind of being used in the right way or being operated in the right way. But from my understanding, and do correct me if I'm wrong, Claire, please do, <laughs> is you end up with a bit of a community energy bond. So it kind of goes into that and then that's where it's protected. And then they have the access to that um, and they can kind of spend it on the things that they need to. Is that Fraser? Yeah, no, I, I was I was going to come in on the back of that, Grace, and of course, shameless shameless self promotion. But you and I worked on a little bit around this. You did most of it, but 
in terms of this, some of the ways that that can look, and I don't mean to nudge in as a guest here now, Matt, but some of the ways that can work, so we, the traditional community benefit fund, but also what we've seen in places like, like we've mentioned on the show before, North Ayrshire, where they generate from renewables owned by the local authority, which then goes into a community a community benefit fund or specifically a community wealth building fund. So there are different ways to own and manage that or sort of receive and manage that money. I think maybe this is where we, we think about scale. So I don't know, Grace or Claire, if you've seen any interesting examples or maybe heard of some in the pipeline that may be more feasible for the, the bigger scale that we have to work at for offshore. Sure. And um, it's really interesting because there's a variety of different ways in which schemes are already administered. Um, so sometimes it's an independent organisation that has a grant distribution remit. Um, sometimes it's a voluntary community organisation. Um, sometimes it's a local authority. So it it tends to vary according to the place in which a particular project is planned and what the local governance might happen to be there. So there's um, a large umbrella organisation that runs across Scotland that um, deals with a lot of these, but just in Scotland, obviously. So it tends to, to vary a lot and there isn't a sort of a set, um, a set way in which funds are administered. Um, it's not a set way that, these, that the governance exists around these sorts of funds. And as Grace mentioned earlier, there's lots of different sorts of funds too. So sometimes it's um, a pot which is held by an independent organisation and community groups um, put in applications. Sometimes projects are directly funded. So there's a great deal of variability at the moment. And I think that flexibility is probably helpful. There's less um, there is less guidance in place for benefits from offshore wind. And I think that's probably a useful thing, bearing in mind the, the state of the industry and um, that things are not as well developed as they are onshore. So variability in this sense is probably good. There is um, a good example of kind of how it's working in offshore wind, though, which is, um, so Orsted have some offshore wind farms off the East Coast and the way that they do it is kind of, you know, put into this fund and then that's, controlled or or managed by an independent company and that's kind of acts a bit like regulation but in terms of what you're saying Claire, about the decision making like how those funds are spent the way they do it is they have a kind of advisory board of, of local stakeholders and campaigners and community council groups and stuff like that and they're the ones that kind of make those decisions on how it how it ends up being used which seems like a quite a nice democratic way of doing it and, and we're talking about significant sums of money, even for offshore wind. So your point about Orsted, uh, you know, that's, if I'm right in saying they're, they're three, they've got three community benefit funds from offshore wind, £6 million delivered to 442 projects. So yeah. Claire's point there about how this is governed, how this is distributed is massive because you could have three different governance and distribution models for the money going into completely different yes. types of projects, a completely different size and or number of projects as well. Like it really matters, the design of these. It does. And I think it's really interesting because the, the Orsted pot, local communities were asked about the priorities that they had for funding and three different um, pots, three different communities, and they all voted for different things as being a priority. So it might well be that actually keeping things local and specific and addressing what local communities identify as their priorities, their need is the most appropriate way forward. So I want to bring us back to this very, very kind of grounded reality of delivering the offshore wind that we that we're looking to deliver and shifting from, you know, one point something gigawatts a year up to four. I mean, pretty much a factor of four increase. And, you know, thinking about and, we're, and we've talked around some of the some of the big challenges and a huge one 
as is evident by our conversation, is around the way in which communities engage and are brought in. Because like we can frame this like, I mean, we've been talking trying to talk about it from a positive lens, but I guess to put it bluntly, if we're trying to massively upscale this, if communities aren't brought in, it's going to create barriers to action. But we also talked a little bit about the supply chains that we need to deliver this. And presumably they are not there right now. The jobs are not there and those uh, the skills may not be there. So, you know, thinking about how communities may be engaged, both in terms of, you know, supporting, engaging with the projects, as well as potentially growing the workforce in those areas. I mean, what are the very practical things that now need to happen to make that target of uh, 50 gigawatts achievable? I think um, learning lessons from fixed offshore wind and the fixed offshore wind is currently developed because their supply chain has gone offshore. It's it's gone abroad. It's um, very offshore. Um, So it, (laughs) it has, you know, because they've not been able to scale up the UK supply chain in line with the development that we've been doing, things have gone abroad and, you know, turbines are built and shipped in and and that kind of stuff. So in order to do, to avoid that for future uh, developments and particularly for floating offshore wind, which kind of we're starting, starting a new and starting in a new area. So again, if you're going to use the supply chain around that region, that's bringing that up from, from the ground up, really. We need to focus on the projects that we can deliver right now. Um, So I want to move away a little bit from that ambition of 50 gigawatts, because if we just aim for 50 gigawatts, what we're going to do is we're just going to keep trying to build up these ports and build up the supply chains to deliver gigawatts. Whereas actually what we've got right now is a handful of 100 megawatt floating offshore wind projects. And we've got some um, gigawatt fixed offshore wind ones. But, you know, it's, it's being able to actually deliver the ones that we've got ready to go now. And what that kind of has is like a domino effect where you know, you're getting work now and then you're getting a bit more work and then you're doing another project. So someone hears about you and then when they look to develop somewhere else, you're the name on their list, you're the company on their list kind of thing. Whereas if we keep telling the supply chain companies in the ports, you know, well, just hold off because we'll, we'll be getting to a gigawatt soon and we'll be getting, you know, we'll be, we will develop 50 gigawatts, but we need to do all this like feasibility work beforehand and stuff. They're not going to be able to just rely on that future promise of a project or promise of 50 gigawatts and so what i think i mean this is from a i've uh, as fraser was saying we've just done some work on floating offshore in the celtic sea so that's kind of where my, my mind keeps going to around this which is a a completely new sector completely new technology and therefore it's very different to fixed offshore wind because while the supply chains are very similar and the um the, the operation of them is very similar we're building up from scratch in terms of the locations and everything. And that's where we need to focus on these. For fixed offshore wind, what we need is to diversify where we're building. And we need to be able to provide the grid and the ports and supply chain for different areas around the UK. Um, And some companies are going to be really, really busy, but it's about making it so that more companies can have work rather than that. And that comes from the tier one contractors for these developers knowing what the capabilities of the UK are and not just going abroad. And also factoring in other things than just profit. And so, you know, if you just look at this from an economic point point of view, then obviously you're going to go to the place that has experience with building these, and you're going to get the lowest cost um, for your wind farm. 
But if you start to factor in environmental benefits, if you start to factor in social benefits, then actually providing a regional and a UK supply chain outweighs going international. But it's a, again, it's around that shifting of perspective about what you prioritise. And I think, Claire, you know, on this kind of possibly to, to, to wrap up here, it's can we build 50 gig going the way that we, we've been going or do we need to change track? Do we need to do this differently? I think you're absolutely right that these are really really the questions to be asking. Becky mentioned earlier about the barriers to action and what we might need to do about those. And in terms of communities, well, communities are or can be, they have been a barrier to action. There have been projects around the UK that have been rejected or very seriously delayed due to community opposition. So, of course, we should be trying to work with communities because it's the right thing to do. It's the moral thing to do. It's part of a just transition. But we could also think very pragmatically that we should be trying to encourage communities, trying to work with communities because opposition can be very effective. But I think rather than trying to think about overcoming that opposition, we should be thinking about this much more positively about the way in which developers and developments can enhance local communities, what they can add, what they can bring, and um, that we can make communities proud hosts to this extraordinary technology. Am I able to come back on a point that um, Claire was talking about earlier? Um, We were talking about earlier about um, shared ownership schemes. Um, and Claire, we're, we're talking about communities owning part of these wind farms. And it comes back as well to what we're saying about scale is that these are a completely different scale to what we have when we talk about onshore community ownership schemes. And there is a question that, you know, this is just being truly pragmatic about it, is the amount of funds that would have to be raised in order to get a share in a turbine or, or a farm, then you're you're raising all that and then you're putting it away and then you're you know hoping for some returns on it and it's obviously it's you know you're going to be getting some returns and you're going to be able to use that money but if they've already raised that money in the first place there is a question about is that the best way to spend it um particularly when community energy schemes or local areas or local authorities you know are challenged to raise those funds in the first place you know that's not an easy thing to raise and we are talking millions of pounds because if we look at a wind farm that's going to be billions of pounds if you want a percentage of it um and there is a question around is this the right thing and i think it's just something we need to consider before we run headfirst into making 10 percent of all these offshore wind farms community owned or or shared ownership is actually is that the best use of that money yeah well i I just my my two pennies worth on on this and it's a very interesting question is it the right scale you know or, or the wrong scale for communities but you know, if you take somewhere like Brighton, right, a very, very population dense uh, city, uh, Brighton and Hove, um, and you know, half of that, if you draw a kind of ring of five miles around the centre of it, half of that is in the sea. So there's actually, you know, kind of a limited opportunity for kind of maybe alternative onshore on onshore uh, renewables, wind, solar, PV, and so you could ask, you could flip this the other way and say, well, actually, communities have to look to offshore energies as community because they're at a natural disadvantage versus inland communities. I wonder if part of it is the attraction of getting people to invest and, and, and put money forward in the first place. If you don't have an onshore energy project and you're not going to do offshore energy projects because they're too large in scale, what is the thing that you're pulling people in with in order for them to, to invest some money and, and help provide funds for communities? And so even though it might be that 
they could spend that money better if they had this just pot of money. Maybe it's the actual act of getting that pot of money in the first place. And that's why you need the kind of pull of investing in offshore wind, which is, you know, uh, which is targeting net zero and all this amazing stuff. Is this maybe an opportunity to think less about then maybe maybe our, our idea of shared ownership or community ownership is too dictated by you know a community solar or a community turbine onshore? Maybe do we Claire? I wonder if you can come in on this. Do we have to be thinking bigger? Maybe like uh, you know the energy for all or the the ripple model of of opening it up to investment from anywhere? Is that still commensurate with true sort of local community benefit? Is this a, a good way into this? Yeah, that's a very interesting question, Fraser. And I think that very often that isn't seen as being local when um, people from outside an area are the ones investing. But it's it's a really interesting question about how communities could invest when the sums here are absolutely huge. And if communities are investing in um, or taking part in shared ownership of an offshore project, then that's going to have to be a very tiny proportion because, as Grace says, it's incredibly difficult to raise the money. But I think that there's something about the principle of investing, even if the um, the proportion of that investment is absolutely tiny. There's something about the principle of investing which demonstrates um, a commitment to by the developer to the community and by the community to the project. And as apparently the Danes say, so as we know, Danish um, um, Denmark is covered in um, cooperatives, onshore wind cooperatives. Apparently the Danes say, your own pigs don't smell. So there's something that I think we can all take forward um, <laughs> that, you know, if you're investing in a project, if you feel that you have some sort of ownership, even in a tiny sense, even a very loose sense, then you're much more likely to be supportive of it or think it doesn't smell. Okay. And, and that and that that has to obviously be the title of the, this episode now, Claire. <laughs> yeah. uh, your own pigs don't smell. Thank you both. I think we ought to draw a line under it. I know we could chat on, but thank you very much uh, for all your insights. It's been absolutely fabulous having you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. You've been listening to Local Zero. Thanks again to our guests, Claire and Grace. If you haven't already, go and find and follow us at Local Zero Pod on Twitter to get involved with discussions there. Also, please, please, please feel free to email us at localzeropod at gmail.com. We really do love hearing from you all. And if you can, do take two minutes to leave us a review. These reviews really help us to spread the word about the podcast and to reach new listeners, especially if they are five stars. Um, But until then, (laughs) thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye, bye-bye, bye.